Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. I want to thank one of the sponsors for the show, and that is Better Help. H-E-L-P. And listen, there are times when life throws you curveballs. Those are never fun. And the more professional help, I believe the better your chances of getting out of it uh, quicker. Better help online. Therapy will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And listen, I have used a therapist for many years. And in fact, I recommend for nearly all my patients to go through that process, not just in terms of the times of turmoil, but in general, because it is a domain that needs to be assessed and addressed. Um, Listen, this is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. This is professional therapy done securely online, available to people worldwide. And I think that this is a great service It is even more affordable than traditional offline therapies and financial aid is available. They have a special offer for my listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Dr. Lion. That's 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash Dr. Lion. I'd like to thank another partner of the show, and that is Inside Tracker. And you guys know that I really believe in blood work, and I think you can't track, you can't adjust, and you don't know the data that you don't uncover. And this is why blood work is very important. Inside Tracker, you guys can take your health in your own hands if you're looking for ways to optimize your hormones or get a sense of how your iron is looking. Insight Tracker is easy, affordable, and you can do it yourself. Insight Tracker provides you with personalized plans to improve your metabolism, reduce stress, and improve sleep, optimize your health for the long haul. But most important, it provides you with data, and I think data is what can drive your choices. For a limited time, you'll get 20% off the entire Insight Tracker store. I think Inside Tracker is a great direct to consumer way to self educate and really explore what works for you, what doesn't. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. Lion. Again, uh, 20% off. I think that this is a great service. Welcome, Dr. Chad Kirksick. I am so excited to have you. Not only are you a dear friend, but you are the incoming president of the International Society for Sports Nutrition. You are a professor of exercise science at Lindenwood in Missouri, which is where we actually met. You are no slouch in publications, having published over 100 papers, many of which are going to be incredibly interesting to my audience, which we will link a handful because you and I are going to talk about that. What I love about you, aside from being much taller than me, Hmm. is that um, you cast a wide net on your interests, everything from protein to ergogenic aids and something that is very unique and 
I've noticed that you've really paid attention to as well as is that you've also focused on the female athlete. And that is a very underserved population in terms of the literature. So I am hoping that as we go through and we talk about some of your clinical interests, that we'll be able to tie in some of the gender differences in terms of, if any, as it relates to uh, carbohydrate consumption, as it relates to ergogenic aids. I'm, I'm really fascinated. You have a clinical interest in, and I quote, examining the impact of exercise and nutritional interventions on changes in health performance and recovery of active and clinical populations. Yep, that's what we do. Welcome. Did I miss anything? No, you did a great job. (laughs) Um, In this episode, I want to really cover two things. You have, again, published multiple papers. And as the incoming president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, you are the first author on the position stand on nutrient timing. So we're going to cover nutrient timing and... I want to cover ergogenic aids, and that's probably all we're going to have time for. We're going to do a deep dive on both of those. And actually, one more thing. You also recently published a review on plants, on plant-based, the proteins and exercise. What role can plants have, plant proteins have in promoting adaptations to exercise? And this was in Nutrients recently in 2021. What do you think? Rock and roll. That's great. Yeah, you, um, your team has done their homework. <laughs> yes. Yes, sir. Uh, well, I want to provide a lot of value to the audience. And also, one of the ideas of this podcast is to bring people on that deserve a platform and that are actually very influential in this space that perhaps are in the trenches and doing the work and not necessarily on social media because, we, let's face it, we've seen your social media page. By we, uh, if, I mean if, me. <laughs> if, if there's a part, yeah. Uh, that, abysmal. That, that part of my existence is fairly abysmal. <laughs> um, so I definitely need to talk about that. Well, that is why I wanted to provide a platform for you because, again, you are a fine scientist. And I would love for you to share, before we dive in to this specific paper, really this position paper on nutrient timing, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, you know, as you, as you said, I think if you start off with where we're at right here, um, so I work at a university in St. Charles, Missouri called uh, Lindenwood University. Uh, St. Charles is a uh, kind of a northwest suburb of the St. Louis area. Uh, I direct a lab here that we call the Exercise and Performance Nutrition Laboratory. And that lab uh, is primarily student run. We've got a couple of coordinators in there as well. Uh, so we use it as uh, a um, primary teaching platform for our undergraduate and graduate students, but then we also conduct a number of different uh, clinical research studies that focus on the interaction between exercise and nutrition, where many of those projects kind of zero in on health outcomes and performance and recovery outcomes as well. So, so that's kind of what I do on a, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Um, uh, married, got two young girls, seven and nine, uh, you know, so beyond the work here at you know at the university, we're kind of chasing after them and all their activities. Um, you know, prior to prior to being here at Lindenwood, I wor- I've worked at a couple different faculty or um, had a couple different faculty appointments. I worked at University of New Mexico in Albuquerque for um, uh, for a couple of years, and then I worked at University of Oklahoma as well. Very so, very cool. Mm-hmm. You know, you uh, are really interested in providing education, and and I'm just wondering. 
why are you doing what you're doing? You know, I don't, I, 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 I get asked that question I, and I can't really explain it. I mean, I've been with all three of my degrees, you know, I, they, they all have the word exercise in them. So there's just been something about exercise that has captured my interest from the very beginning. Uh, I know when I was my first research project, when I was uh, in undergrad, that really kind of lit a switch in terms of just for me, the pursuit of knowledge, being able to ask a question and then uh, kind of design a study and work with students on, 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 on answering those questions. It, it's just something um, that I've always just really valued. So I think that part of it, you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly, you know, hungry learner. I, you know, and I think that's the common thread that, that you see across, uh, I think, many scientists and, and academics and people that, that truly like the processes. They just, they just love to learn. Uh, so that, that is something that I think defines me. I'm, I'm continually reading different articles, what, you know, for various, for various reasons across kind of a fairly wide net of things. I, uh, I would absolutely you know, so, agree with that. Yeah. So, you know, and I think it certainly started with the thirst. And then, as you mentioned, it, it's definitely pivoted into, you know, you, so like th that's my gift, I guess my, my gift is, is, is this, this hunger and this, this wanting to learn. Um, so then it turns into where you want to try to do things to help give back and, and you give back to, yeah, you know, whether it's. It is really authentically something I love about you is this idea of giving back. And again, that's, that's what really struck me. And, and with the influx of social media and the influx of what we are seeing access to in a way that we've never seen before, the people that are actually in the arena doing the work are overshadowed somewhat by the noise. And that creates a distance between what actually works and what is really gonna serve the people. That brings me to, I'm assuming why you guys wrote this position stand on nutrient timing and you know, you examine all the evidence. I, from what I understand, you are bringing evidence-based information examining all the evidence, the literature, and putting it in a position stand. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty Amazing. Much. Let's jump in. So we're gonna discuss what are nutrients. So we say nutrient timing, what are they? Right, and I think, you know, so like the most traditional definition of that would be things that provide, I think number one, energy. You know, so a lot of times within nutrition, right, we can, we can classify different nutrients into like our macronutrients or those that give us energy. So carbs, fats, and proteins. And then we can have like, mac, you know, like mic micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, and some, some people will kind of lump water into that. So they, you know, uh, um, so essentially that's kind of what the position stand was, was locked in on and, and like predominantly the macronutrients. And the origins of position, uh, the origins of nutrient timing really seemed to start not that long ago in the 1970s, where they determined that there was a need for carbohydrates as it relates to glycogen and glycogen is the storage form of carbohydrates used in endurance type activities. Is that, did I get that correct? Yeah, and I, it, it's funny because I think, you know, like in today's day and age, I think there's so many people that would think like, you know, nutrient timing was born with like, you know, proteins and amino acids and taking, you know, slugging down a protein shake surrounding a workout. Whereas the, the reality is, 
is it, it goes back to the really with the 70s of, of people starting to realize that, hey, wait a minute, if we if we eat a, a, a high carbohydrate meal, you know, or, or several meals, you know, two, three days beforehand that, that we've got more we've got more fuel packed into the muscles and we can we can run further. We can run harder, cycle harder. So. And when we think about nutrient timing, nutrient timing incorporates the use of methodology. It is really about methodical planning, eating whole foods, fortified foods, and dietary supplements. And ultimately, it's the timing of energy intake and the ratio of certain ingested macronutrients with the goal of enhancing recovery, tissue repair, augmenting muscle protein synthesis, which I have a specific interest in, improving mood, perhaps. And this is really following high volume or intensive exercise. Initially, when you break this down, what are the baseline recommendations? Who is it for? And how can an individual implement that? Yeah, and, well, and, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's, a really, that's a really broad, I think, question because, you know, like number one, you, you, when you get that type of a question, we always want people to think about, okay, well, what, what nutrient are we talking about? Um, you know, because if we're talking about carbohydrates, you know, yeah, and if, if we just get into that, you know, so like carbohydrate timing, you know, we have, you know, so certainly, you know, basically what we're wanting to do is work for, for different athletes um, that are, whether they're competitive or they're doing some type of a weekend event where they're, you know, they're really going to expend, um, you know, a, um, a tremendous amount of fuel, you know, where, where they are you know, going through a concerted effort of, of, of eating a series of meals for two, three days beforehand while also kind of dialing back on their training volume. Uh, and we, we see that, you know, the muscles get get fairly loaded up, you know, with glycogen, that, that stored form of carbohydrate. And then it, there's recommendations, you know, one to four hours before. So think of team sport athletes and the traditional pregame meal. When should that be? What should that, what should that meal comprise of? And again, it needs to be pretty heavily leveraged towards carbohydrates. Which is which is you know, interesting because sure. in today's society, there's a lot of different kind of nutrition strategies that people are talking about. There's a ketogenic style, there's a vegan vegetarian, there's a carnivore style, there's a paleo style. And really what you're talking about is fundamentally from a basic level, carbohydrates and carbohydrates are you know things like potatoes and rice and pastas and uh, and you guys probably use some kind of uh, carbohydrate rich drink right are there other carbohydrates yeah. that you guys leverage sure and, and i mean i think a lot of that just kind of depends upon the specific study question but yeah different different forms of carbohydrates and are are, are very commonly used but you know the, the i think the one thing that i that i think is important to go back to is when you say like who is it who is timing for? And, and I think, so what you really start to get at there is because, you know, you're right, there's going to be a lot of signal coming out from various media sources about timing. And, and really, you know, the, the, the research has become pretty clear that, you know, for, uh, you know, an everyday gym goer, you know, somebody who's, you know, doing a hour long workout most days of the week, I mean, somebody who could be extremely fit and extremely devoted to their to their body and health, timing probably isn't that critical of an element for them. Um, 
So it really, you know, the, the, the more that we continue to study it, the, the potential benefit for timing really gets into the kind of the fringes of the extremes where we have people that are, you know, they're, they're doing multiple sessions of training per day that are either very intense or very long or they have limited recovery windows, you know, so you think of, you know, sporting scenarios where maybe there's, you know, you know, so like um, uh, a weekend tournament where they might play two, three, four games within a, you know, kind of two or two or three day period. Those types of recovery d demands are, are really kind of present, I think, the best opportunity for things like timing. Um, and and I want to stop you because for the listener, that's very liberating. There's a lot of, mm -hmm. right? There's it, a lot of confusion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, should absolutely. I, yeah, should I drink a right. um, carbohydrate smoothie after I did right. my cycling or after I went to the gym and I lifted? That becomes very liberating in this idea that if we are to optimize health, does it need to be as um, mechanical, as just very kind of fine-tuned and the answer is probably as long as our macronutrient ratios are optimized for our individual body and the idea that perhaps we are not training in some exponential way you know i only train for an hour a day that it probably is not going to be very important for me nutrient timing as it relates to carbohydrate ingestion right agreed and you know, I did some of the calculations I was looking at. One of the key recommendations on this position paper was endogenous glucose, uh, endogenous glycogen stores, which again, we spoke about what glycogen is. It's a storage form of carbohydrates are maximized by following a high carbohydrate diet. And this is, this is actually really high. Eight to 12 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram per day. And I, I just want to put that into perspective for people, and this was obviously, these stores were depleted uh, most by high volume exercise, which I would love for you to mention exactly what that is, or at least a framework. And I'm about 52 kilograms, so it's about 115 pounds. And at the low end of the carbohydrate recommendation for someone who is incredibly active, that puts me at 52 times eight, which is 416 grams of carbohydrates. And at the right. high, and at the I high know. end, it's six over six hundred. I know. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, I mean, the numbers are extremely high. Now, I, I, I think, you know, one one of the things that I like about the science science is the sense that that position stand was written in two thousand eighteen. So I think even since that time, even the four year period now, we would probably work hard to make it really pretty clear that that eight to twelve number is really even better is more so focused in on a competitive endurance athlete you know somebody who's a runner or a cyclist a tour cyclist where they're out for you know two hours minimum three hours four hours you know most days of the week uh doing what they do so and then you know but even then the reality is, is that people that are training at, at you know, high intensities and, you know, moderate, moderately high volumes, you know, 60 to 120 minutes, most days of the week, you know, they're, we're still looking at five grams per kg on the very low end up to probably about eight grams per kg. I think, you know, um, so it's still, so the numbers come down and it's all relative to your volume. 
but the reality is, is that the, I, I think one of the things that we always try to emphasize to people is that, you know, you, you have these people that will go to the gym every day. They, they, they're very serious about their workouts. They'll go in, they'll go extremely hard for an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And they'll read these papers and they think, well, you know, why well, work out six days a week? You know, like I, I need to be at eight, nine grams per kg per day. And you're just like, well, maybe, but probably not really. Because, you know, again, like the, you know, the, the amount of training volume that a, that a, that a non-competitive athlete goes through in comparison to an organized competitive athlete is, is typically quite a bit smaller. Uh, you know, so there's, so that's the part of it that I, that these discussions are, are, are helpful, hopefully for people is you, you start to, you know, you have to just kind of get a really good, honest assessment on who you are and, and, and where you fit. It doesn't make you good or, or, or bad or, or better or worse. It just, we want to try to kind of put you into that right spot. Um, because I'll tell you that 25 years ago, we didn't even have that much detail within the carbohydrate recommendation. It was just more of a blanket seven to 10 grams per kg for nearly, for nearly anyone that considered themselves an athlete. And, 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 you know, the, we, we've certainly developed. Yeah. What would be a baseline recommendation for someone who is going to the gym and they're, you know, <laughs> putting in moderate amount of activity, but let's, let's, we can first start by saying endurance and they're putting in an hour of day of endurance activity. And I think it's really important to say these are healthy individuals. I'm obviously just making up this group because I am curious um, in terms of are these recommendations translatable to individuals who are obese or who have some kind of low grade inflammation, you know, from a protein perspective, there's a little bit of what, you know, I, I've seen some literature to highlight that they have a little bit of anabolic resistance, quite frankly. Um, and I know we're talking about carbohydrates, but I am just curious about in terms of the health of the skeletal muscle, it seems as if we have to decide or an individual needs to decide, are they metabolically healthy or not? So if an individual is metabolically healthy, can they go through with some of these carbohydrate recommendations. And I would define metabolically healthy by having a triglyceride level easily under 100, fasting, uh, blood sugar, insulin, that is all within uh, normal ranges versus say a metabolically unhealthy individual, I would not recommend loading up on any kind of carbohydrates. And I'm sure that you, you would say the same. Um, but back to my question, what would you recommend a traditional gym goer? Yeah, and I, I, I think, I mean, that, and that's, that's such an important question because the, 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 the reality is, is that I think the majority of the listeners are probably going to kind of fall within that, that realm. And I think, the, you know, uh, three to five grams per kg per day functions as, as a really pretty reasonable range. Um, you know, I, I think it's another thing that's important for people to hear is that when you hear these ranges, we're not trying to throw a dart and hit the bullseye every single time with the recommendations. The recommendations are more about that we're, we're, we're very confident that when we throw that dart, we're going to hit the dartboard, that we're going we're gonna to put that dart reasonably in the same area. And I think mentally that's an important perspective because people have to realize that, you know, as you, if you train more on one day, well, then that, those, that carbohydrate number is going to be higher. And, 
And, and also, too, if you decide to take a day off or you're, you're traveling and, and you're not able to work out, maybe you just go on some walks so your intensity and durations are lower, then you need to bring those carbohydrate numbers down, you know, but you still may kind of fall within that range. The, the latter part of what you were highlighting, so now if we pivot into a population of people that are going to be probably more sedentary than active, you know, if they're metabolically not as healthy as they could be, their fitness status and capacity is probably mo very much on the low end of things. You know, that's where we would almost kind of look at where, you know, there's uh, from a carbohydrate intake, you know, th they can probably do pretty well with having a fairly limited amount of carbohydrate throughout the day. And I think as long as they're feeling kind of fueled through their workouts, you know, because I mean, it, again, it needs to be highlighted. I mean, when we're exercising, carbohydrates are the fuel. It doesn't matter if you're 100 pounds overweight or you are a world-class CrossFitter or ultramarathon athlete. If you are exercising, carbohydrates are being burned preferentially by your muscle tissue. So, so that's why we talk about carbohydrates relative to activity and exercise. So you, you do have to kind of have this spectrum, right, of people that um that, that that will likely be achieving different different levels of exercise um you know because you know the, the the things that i love about exercise for that metabolically challenged person right is the fact that we know that as we exercise and man if i know if i start talking about muscle <laughs> yeah you're i'll fire up no excited, i'm already right? fired up i, I wake up like you know, this <laughs> yeah but I, but I think that, you know, there's, but as people begin to adopt a regular exercise program and their, the, the, the fitness status of their muscle tissue, the quality of their muscle tissue increases, as we know, right, their ability to metabolize fats through our diet and in our body and glucose levels in our, in our blood, you know, the, 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 the muscle tissue is, a, is a just a great reservoir, not reservoir, a great sponge, a great consumer of those of those potential sources of energy and that is that's a that's a very healthy thing for i mean especially for people that are maybe looking to develop a consistent exercise habit um you know where you know it there's there's just a tremendous amount of positive that comes from a metabolic health perspective of just being a regular exerciser um so that's so that's a i mean that's an extremely important point that doesn't really relate much, I think, to nutrient timing, um, but it's it is it's something that is extremely important. Just in terms yeah, of I mean, it, muscle is very potent, potent for the metabolism, potent for macronutrient utilization. Now, I calculated when you mentioned three to five grams per kilogram, depending on if you know how intensive someone is training. I calculated a minimum intake for me would be 156 grams. That's assuming I'm doing what an hour of exercise. I, and, and I think again, you know, even if that would go down to, you know, I mean, even like a, a, a little bit more moderate duration of, you know, 35 to 40 minutes. If it's if it's a pretty, it's a it's a really good, high quality, moderate to sometimes a little bit of, you know, kind of mixed in with, you know, some vigorous intensity. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a reasonable number for in, like in terms of a start. And then as the intensity, as well as the duration increases, then, then that's why we, that now we can justify, you know, a little bit, 
of a higher recommendation on that. And in terms of timing, for example, I go and I'm going to go do sprint intervals as much as I can. Now we're talking about a little more anaerobic activity, but uh, sprint intervals for as hard as I can, as long as I can, first thing in the morning. Does it matter what kind of nutrients in terms of nutrient timing? Does it matter when I have my first meal? Does it matter if that is carbohydrates or dietary protein? Right. So great question. There's a tremendous amount of interest in like, you know, whether we're talking about fasted cardio or fasted exercise or should you eat or should you not eat? And and my answer for that would be, I think particularly if we're talking about something where, you know, so the exercise you mentioned takes great, like psychological, like emotional intent. Like you don't, you don't decide to do cycling intervals or running intervals and just half-ass it. You know what I mean? Like, and you, nobody you got, listening, no listener is going to feel that they're not going to do that either. They're going to go all in. Yeah. Right. So, I, you know, but I, but I think, you know, because certainly, right, there's there's certain types of workouts where, you know, yeah, you could you could alternatively just get on a treadmill at 5.30 in the morning and just kind of zombie your way through a 30-minute walk. And, and it, you know, it is what it is. So I think... It, when we're talking about an exercise session that, that takes some intent and some mental focus and desire, uh, I, I think it does certainly make sense to have uh, some carbohydrate, you know, kind of circulating around in the blood because, you know, after a, an overnight sleep, six, seven, eight hours, I mean, there's, you know, kind of a number of studies that show that that, you know, through sleep, I mean, the, um, uh, the amount of liver glycogen that we have gets, gets wiped out pretty good. And when that's gone, then our, you know, then our, our carbohydrate stores, you know, get, get pushed over a little bit more towards, you know, like our muscle glycogen stores. And uh, so definitely that it makes sense to, to have some type of a small carbohydrate meal or, or, or snack. The, the thing is there is, again, we have to be practical. So if it's an early morning session, you know, and, you know, people think to themselves, God, I don't, I don't like getting up early to begin with. And now he's telling me I got to get up. 30, 45 minutes, you know, even earlier to get something to eat. And that's, so that's where people just kind of have to kind of figure out their, you know, like which, what, what's going to be their priority. You know what I mean? Like if you've got to get up early because of your other time demands and family demands, and that threatens your ability or compromises your ability to get some carbohydrates in your, in your, in your system, then that may challenge your ability to really get after it and push it a little bit in the morning, you know? So um, you know, I, I, I think um, that the, the, uh, another consideration is also you know, we always want to make sure that people don't go a little bit overboard with what they're eating. And now they kind of overwhelm their stomach and their gut and they get they get cramps. They might vomit. They you know, what I mean, like there's just they get they get all upset. And then that that ruins their experience as well, too. So there's a lot of practical aspects, I think, certainly. You know, carbohydrate solutions can be a, um, a, a um, you know, a, a, a nice alternative or, you know, something to consider or, you know, if you want to try to get, because then there's people out there that are, that are really pretty sensitive to uh, symptoms of hypoglycemia, you know, they, where they get, they get really nauseated, they feel really, really weak and they really need some carbs. So those types of people would, would certainly probably prioritize a little bit more of, you know, having some type of a, carbohydrate snack or drink ready to go when they're you know, for leaving the gym. You know, if it's, if we, if we get away from that early morning time period, 
you know, the, then then it's just a matter of just kind of scheduling some things. It's like, hey, if you're going to hit the gym at 10 o'clock, you know, have you know, have something at, you know, usually two, three hours before functions at a, you know, at a, at a really pretty good time. It allows for some, you know, some, some digestion to occur uh, and you kind of go from there. So basically what I'm hearing um, you say is don't really stress about it. Uh, there's there's some benefit. There exactly. is some benefit yeah. uh, in terms of performance, but it really is individual. And you know, thinking about the recommendations, whether it's three to five grams per kilogram or higher, if you are a very competitive athlete, eight to twelve grams per kilogram a day. Those are um, recommendations that are supported in the literature. You also mentioned about. Um, well, actually, you didn't mention about this. You did mention about a carbohydrate solution. And, and what I have here is for greater than 70% of VO2 max exercise for uh, fuel supply and fluid regulation, carbohydrates could be consumed between 30 and 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour. And actually, Don Lehman also talks about that quite a bit in a six to 8% carbohydrate electrolyte solution. I'm curious as to what you are utilizing for electrolytes. I know we're talking about macronutrient timing. Do you speak on electrolyte solution timing as well as it relates to performance, if at all? Yeah, and it, so the, the literature base relative to a timing scenario it has been largely unexplored in terms of timing delivery of, of electrolytes in different amounts or even ratios, that's a whole aspect of, of science that quite honestly researchers haven't really explored. So there's a potential, you know, kind of unturned stone um, in that respect. And, you know, I think when we talk about a glucose electrolyte solution, I mean, that's a, that's just a fancy terminology for, you know, I mean, some type of a, you know, like a commercial sports beverage, whether it's a Gatorade or a Powerade or, or any or any of the other brands that have kind of entered into the marketplace. Well, we certainly know hydration is incredibly years. important, really, out, even outside the scope of, of exercise. In terms, yeah. I, I, I mean, in that, in that, and I sorry to interrupt you, but I think in that perspective, you know, that is probably, particularly this time of the year, I, I mean, from a recovery angle, You'll always hear a lot of conversation, right, about about the role of carbohydrates and protein. But the one thing that a lot of people really overlook is 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 actually like replenishing lost fluid. Uh, it is a critical driver for, um, I mean, temperature regulation, but just really getting the body into a scenario where it can it can kind of get on with Absolutely. life and get after. I would love to move into resistance exercise and your perspective on carbohydrate carbohydrate ingestion throughout resistance exercise and we can say that's you know three to six sets of eight to twelve repetition uh, multiple exercises targeting all major muscle groups tell me what your thoughts are in terms of baseline recommendations so that the listener can implement that if in fact there's any relevance to that yeah and I think Right, and I, you know, so carbohydrates and resistance training performance have, it's, um, th there's definitely not as much of a developed literature base for that mode of exercise. That, you know, the, the in the, you know, the late 60s and the 70s, there was just a tremendous amount of work done with endurance models, and there's a number of reasons what, why that, why that is. But in terms of resistance exercise, um, you know, there's really not a firm recommendation 
either for or against it. You know, I, I, there's just, I think there's a number, there's many studies that show that, yeah, it may help with, you know, um, uh, exercise performance or feelings of intent. And then there's a, there's a number of studies that show that, you know what, taking carbohydrates may not necessarily impact, you know, maximal strength or, or repetitions completed. So, you know, so there's, um, that's a bit of a wash. And I think that can be confusing, I think, for, uh, the consumer at times. So I, I think for me, a lot of that goes back to preference, you know, like, cause I know just as many people that, that they, 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 they simply cannot, you know, imagine the thought of going into a, you know, like a weight training session and not have some source of carbohydrates either, you know, in their system before they start or kind of throughout. And it, and it does make sense when we're lifting weights, our muscles are burning carbohydrates. So, so, um, you know, certainly if you're relatively carbohydrate restricted throughout the day, and if you're energy restricted throughout the day, you know, those two terms right there, those, you add them up and that means that there's just not a whole lot of carbohydrate around. And then you go, you go into a gym session and you're trying to lift weights, heavier weights, more times, more sets, more muscles, you know, like your body's burning up carbohydrates that are already limited by the fact that you've cut calories and you've cut carbs. So, so that's where I, I, I see a lot of people will, will leverage their carbohydrate intake, um, surrounding their workout because, you know, they're almost kind of saving their carbs for their workout. And frankly, I actually think that's a great strategy, even if we're talking about that it may perhaps not make huge improvements in performance simply based on utilization, simply based on the fact that it's possible that it can improve efficiency of use. Um, what about, so we're talking about throughout resistance exercise. In terms of post-exercise carbohydrate consumption, do you feel that if we are in the gym and we are using muscle glycogen, we are using glucose, Post-exercise, is there benefit to carbohydrate repletion in that regard? Right. And, and I think how I answer that scenario, I think the most important thing for somebody to highlight when you're put into that, that question or that answer or the whole context is what is the goal? Like what, are we, what, 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 what outcome are we striving for surrounding that question? Because I think we, a lot of times we have, we have two camps with that answer. And one of them is, well, my goal is to, is to you know, maximize muscle hypertrophy. I want to have, I want to pack on as much muscle as possible. I want to get as big and lean as possible. And in that situation, carbohydrates are not really that, that anabolic from a skeletal muscle perspective, you know, so they're not, they're, there's, you know, there's, there's certain researchers, you know, that have uh, examined those questions really pretty good. And, and I think we've, it's become pretty well established that, um, you know, carbohydrates certainly provide a supportive role w with overall you know, adaptations, but they're not a primary driver in muscle hypertrophy. So in that sense, since that's where, you know, optimal um, uh, dietary protein intake is going to become important, you know, um, uh, essential amino acid intake. Now, if the other, if the other side of that coin, the other camp would be with like performance and recovery, you know, so like if they're, if they're doing a gym session in the morning and then they're going to come back in the evening and run some intervals or, you know, or they're going to do, you know, like a, a fasted walk in the morning 
but then come back in the gym in the afternoon and really want to get out, get after it and crush back and buys in another body part. Well, consuming some carbohydrate leading up to those workouts where your intensity is going to be up, it just makes sense, you know, and, and that's where, you know, again, even if the literature base doesn't necessarily clearly point towards in enhancement and performance, I think nearly anyone would say, you know what, I'm just going to feel better. Like if I have carbs in my system, like I'm just going to grab bigger weights. I'm going to want to try to do it more times. And, and I don't really think anybody within exercise physiology would, would, uh, would question the, the Dr. The, Chad, the, are you the, saying the we are using so, common sense? <laughs> uh, uh, we, you know what, when, I mean, I know that that's hard for some people. Uh, to do Incredible. at times, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I think it does, you know, that's where, you know, just, it, we, we can simplify it so much by just, if people just accept the fact that if you're exercising at an intensity that you consider to be medium intensity to hard, your body is burning carbohydrates during whatever activity it is. It doesn't, I don't care what it is. Like, so if that's what you're engaging in, then it makes sense for you to have And I want to stop you because that is very important. It doesn't matter if you are running, doesn't matter if you are lifting. You're you're just saying if you are putting moderate intensity exercise in your life, you are utilizing glucose. You're utilizing the substrate and there would be no reason why. There's there is no there's no question about it. Like I mean absolutely yes, you know, so uh and, and I think that's one of you know, kind of goes back to the, like the first 10 minutes that we, that we were, you know, just there's, there's a lot of signal that's coming out from different sources and different articles that are written with a certain purpose or a certain outcome in mind. And they don't really fully vet the, the background kind of surrounding it. Um, and I think it's just important for people to understand that, you know, if you're, you know, um, if you're going to exercise and try to, and try to work hard, uh, your, your, your muscles are gonna burn carbohydrates. Like, I mean, that's just what happens. Protein is an essential part of eating well for health and thriving in life, no matter your age, gender, or goals. Getting in adequate amounts of protein every day is an area that a lot of people struggle and can struggle even more during the busy, on-the-go months of summer. However, no matter how busy we are, we can still get adequate amounts of protein in with a simple amount of planning and supplementation when needed. When it comes to protein and protein powders, they are not all the same. The type of protein and the quality of the protein makes a big difference in how it fuels your body. And for me, I've been using First Form's Formula One natural protein powder since 2018. It's a high-quality, pure whey protein isolate sweetened with stevia, has optimal amounts of branched-chain amino acids, and is a convenient option to help get in adequate amounts of protein. Great to use as part of that first meal of the day or around a workout, or really anytime you need to increase your protein. You can check out Formula One, Natural, and other supplements at first, uh, spelled 1ST, P-H-O-R-M dot com backslash Dr. Lion. And I have two questions here. Number one, how does an individual on a ketogenic diet fare in this burning glucose in 
skeletal muscle. And yeah, well, let's start with that question. Well, and, and, and that is such a fair question because I mean, you know, ketogenic diets have become extremely unpopular. I mean, they are, uh, because again, I think many times some of these sources of information, they, 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 they pitch or leverage a keto diet as, you know, uh, magical or more powerful at weight loss or, you know, I mean, you know, kind of being, uh, you know, the missing secret in terms of what people may be looking for. So it sounds extremely attractive. Um, so that, so the, the, the level of popularity, it does, I think m makes sense a little bit. There's in terms of truly understanding like the role of a ketogenic diet in terms of a, a wide spectrum of activities, science has a bit of catching up to do. I think in general, um, you, you know, and, and if you just kind of bear with me, like what, what all, you know, if we kind of take different activities across the intensity spectrum, you know, so like what I would teach my students, I would say, you know, like uh, an Olympic weightlifter, you know, a shot putter, a discus thrower could, could probably fare pretty well on like a ketogenic diet because they're doing one unbelievably explosive, powerful, forceful movement that's over in five seconds. So we're, you know, even though we're burning carbohydrates, then it only lasts for five seconds. And then as you transition, you know, then we have things like weightlifting and soccer and, and then we, you know, team sports, basketball, lacrosse, you know, then we move into, you know, the more of, you know, prolonged endurance activities, whether it's a 10K, 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon, and so on. You know, the longer that the duration goes, because again, like as we work harder, irrespective of what we're doing, we're going to burn carbohydrates. Ketogenic diet is going to, if you're following the typical prescriptions, right there, consuming, you know, 30 to 50 grams of carbs per day ballpark, you know, so that's not a lot. I mean, you know, we can, you'll burn that amount of carbohydrates up in a, a you know, 45 minute gym session. So it, it's over pretty quick. Um, you know, so if you're doing those activities, it, you know, the, I think the, the big, the key thing with the, the role of our, the impact of a ketogenic diet, it boils down to like, if you want to be able to perform at your your optimal ability, which probably means that you need to lift more, run faster, pedal harder, swim harder, whatever it might be, you, you need you know um, a ketogenic diet is is not going to deliver enough carbohydrates to really to get that done, and we do consistently see that in the literature. There is a play. I mean, I think for me personally, I think. The, the, the world of like ultra endurance athletes, these people that are, you know, ultra endurance is commonly defined as just any event and that could be a hundred miles. Um, it, it could be, it, it could be, it could be, a, it could be a 30 mile run. It could be a hundred mile run. It could be a 200 mile run. Um, you know, the, again, they, they haven't really developed that definition a little bit more. Of course we could do other modes of activity, but you know, we're talking about things that are, you know, at least three hours long, four hours long, and many of them are, are much, 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 much longer. In those scenarios, you know, our intensity has to come down, right? You can't just keep running at an extremely high pace for anywhere near that amount of time. Um, so when we, we, we exercise at a little bit lower intensity, our body's able to burn more fat for fuel and kind of we can kind of maintain that intensity. 
And that's really where I feel like a you know, higher fat diet or a, um, a ketogenic diet is probably going to find its home um, for you know many diff many different groups of athletes. And I, I think that, but just the reality is, is that for people that have some level of intensity to their workouts and they want that intensity to be as high as possible, um, they need to figure out a way how to get carbohydrates into their body surrounding their, you know, surrounding their workouts. And, you know, Louise Burke from, um, uh, you know, from Australia has probably done the best work in that. She's just a fantastic scientist, world-class individual. Um, she's, she's, she did a kind of a series of studies uh, on, um, you know, basically the, the best like race walkers in the world and just some fascinating, uh, you know, designs where they, where they had high carbohydrate diets and ketogenic diets. And they really consistently showed that when a ketogenic diet was employed, that the athlete's ability to achieve, you know, peak intensities and perform was really, was, you know, was really compromised and they did better when there was more carbohydrate in the diet. You know, that, that is very interesting because also when you think about nutrient timing, it seems as if in general fat has been overlooked. Yeah, it, it has. And I think, you know, really kind of for probably for a couple of reasons. And I think, number one, the fact that we see such dynamic changes in carbohydrate amount across, a, a, a I mean, a, a two, a, I mean, a two, three hour window of exercise, much less across the day. So there's, so we, we see that the, the, this, the amount of stored carbohydrate is, is pretty drastically changing. And then we also know from a number of studies that carbohydrate is just a, 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 a very much preferred fuel source. Um, so there's, there's just been a lot of focus towards carbohydrates because quite frankly, when there's more carbohydrate available to the muscle, people run faster. And they run, they run longer, and they cycle harder. Um, so fats is, you know, the, there's definitely been research that has explored, you know, uh, short-term high-fat diets and long-term high-fat diets and you know, high-fat ketogenic diets. And I think consistently what we see with with higher fats, and not necessarily timed. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about why we don't want to worry about timing fats, but the higher-fat diets in general, what we what we run into there is that it, it, it's, it's really pretty fascinating. When we give more fat to our muscle, our muscle adapts and it gets better at burning fat for fuel. It's, muscle is so cool in the sense that it just, it, it does that. But the thing is, is that this is why I love, I love um, Louise Burke's perspective. Again, you know, so she was kind of the, the, the head sport nutritionist, you know, for Australia for years. And she would simply say, does it make my athletes? I, I like her. Like I'm worried I like about winning woman. gold medals. I don't care about how much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like I don't. I don't care about how much. I mean, I care about how much fat that they burn. But are they winning? Are they setting PRs? Are they? Are they? What you know? What she would say, like, what color is the medal on their neck? So, you know, and in in that respect, what we see is that with higher fat diets, short term or long term, ketogenic or not, that the the muscle is able to retool itself and burn more fat but they're not able to consistently perform as, as well as if they had more carbohydrates in the diet. So if you truly are competitive in the sense that you wanna be able to run a 5K as fast as you can, or whatever it is, that again, carbohydrates really become kind of a, a pretty central 
uh, ingredient in that in that outcome. Um, from a fat timing perspective, it the biggest thing would be the fact that you know fat digests really pretty slow, and you know so you always want to. We, we actually as we get into pregame meals and things along those lines, you know the those meals are are, are commonly recommended where we want to have relatively low amounts of fiber and relatively low amounts of fat just because digestion rates slow down. If you eat a lot of fat or a lot of fiber, you know, an hour before, two hours before, um, that, that can still be hanging around in the stomach and, and that, that can make it pretty tough for people to, to get out and work pretty hard. That, that makes a lot of sense. I wouldn't be having you on a podcast and not talking about protein. <laughs> um, I would yeah, love to discuss protein timing as it relates to both endurance and resistance exercise. And then I, at some point, I know we have limited time today, but obviously we're gonna be doing this again, and then we're gonna be doing this in, in person. But I also would love to get into the next frontier of what we're gonna be seeing over, I, I'm imagining the next decade, which is plant protein and the variations of plant protein and how that actually impact exercise. So let's start with um, nutrient timing of protein, please. Yep. Oh, good. Yeah, so yeah. Just, I'm just gonna listen. I'm just gonna take notes, off. Learn. And you just jump in and, <laughs> and 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 just and stop me, interrupt me, stop me, kind of wherever you want me to. But I think when we talk about when we deal with protein timing, um, I mean, just you know, there's that is probably the macronutrient that that just blew the top off of the popularity of nutrient timing. The whole notion that Consuming amino acids immediately after a workout or before a workout would, you know, lead to better gains. Just really, um, like I said, led to just exponential popularity in the topic. And I think as we've we've started to uh, the overall, I mean, the literature has really become pretty clear. And I think honestly, probably a little bit disappointing for people that really, really want timing to be something. But you know, we we see consistently that if if an individual is getting enough protein in their diet throughout the day, that timing for a large majority of individuals probably is gonna exert little to no influence. And I also wanna mention, I actually was having a long conversation with Don about why that's what some of the literature shows. And do you wanna know what he says? Don says he believes that timing matters and the reason we are not seeing big changes is because all the majority of the studies are utilizing protein timing in that first meal of the day so typically it's after an overnight fast so in the literature they're overlooking the fact that it's the first meal of the day that everyone is studying and if you were to backload the protein um, and actually change so if you were to have a, a higher protein dinner he's actually going to come out with a, a paper on this and i'm probably not even supposed to be talking about this so i'm sorry don but this is chad and this is very important so he does believe that protein matters and he is under the impression that we're just not looking at it in the appropriate way and that it's all the data is based on that first meal and if protein timing didn't matter then it wouldn't matter where individuals place those meals so anyway Right, and I, and and I mean I you know when when I hear you say that, um, it, that that artifact is 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 indeed a reality in the sense that you know when we go about designing studies, right? It's 
you know, we're, we're wanting to control, 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 control. So many of the studies, you know, use that overnight fast as an option to kind of just kind of level things off metabolically and, and you get people in pretty consistently in the morning and then and then you invoke your intervention. So so that part of things I, I think is, is really neat. We're starting to see some more work uh, with, you know, like, um, you know, like uh, pre-sleep protein intake from a timing perspective and, the, you know, the potential influence on that. I mean, timing's not done. I mean, you know, there, there are there are people in stories that will be written, but it's just, it's a, it, you know, we're kind of in the, you know, kind of a natural evolution of, you know, timing's amazing. No, nope, timing is garbage. No, wait, timing might work. And then, you know, and then, and then, and then we, 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 we have other people, you know, just exactly like, you know, what Don has mentioned is that, no, 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 wait a minute. Like there, that's, there, there could be, there could be some things here. Let's, let's explore this possible scenario. So, uh, it, it'll it'll be really neat to see. But but what you are saying is in the literature right now, the large body of evidence would suggest that total protein intake is most important. Um, I am I'm curious is in terms of perspective from a sporting perspective. I would say from a health perspective, aging individuals, um, also obese individuals seem to have a bit of anabolic resistance, but that's not related to quote timing. Now we're talking about dosing. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think, so I think what a lot of times, and I, you know, we may use the terminology like protein patterns, you know, like, you know, what's their pattern of consuming protein throughout the day? Um, because that really kind of reflects, you know, if they're, you know, are, are they eating two meals versus, you know, four meals or five meals? And then obviously if they are achieving anywhere near kind of a recommended uh, total protein intake, then that's, that's by function is going to affect their dose, you know, what, what, what dose they're consuming. So that's where, I mean, you, you, we, we could literally spend, we, we could do multiple. We won't. I want to hear your current recommendations. I want to hear the International Society for Sports Nutrition's recommendations on protein, because I know the listener wants to know that and your perspective. Right. So I think you know. I, I so I was uh, you know fortunate to be um, um, uh, to be a part of that writing group. So you know, Ralph Yeager is the first author on on the uh, ISIS and position stand on protein. Uh, our, our our recommendation uh, for you know active individuals and such is you know kind of you know one point four to two grams per gate per kg per day. You know, the RDA, the RDA sits at 0.8. Um, I, I think for me, if people really just want to know, well, what do you think? And I, my, my go-to recommendation for Great. nearly everyone is, and is two times. There's the RDA, a lot of data to support 1.6. that. There's a lot of data I just to support that. Think it, yeah. You know, there's a really a wonderful position stand um, with authors from the uh, American College of Sports Nutrition, or I'm sorry, um, American College of Sports Medicine, um, uh, uh, Society of Nutrition and Dietetics, Dietitians of Canada, they, they kind of combined. Uh, and I think their guideline is somewhere around that 1.6 to 1.8 as well. So you see a, a lot of pretty large groups hovering around that, you know, 1.6, 1.8 range. And, and again, I don't really think you'll see many people that'll, that'll, that'll kind of, you know, back away from that. So I, I think in general, for the, for the majority of of uh, of people is what I would I would say is that you know if you're that you know you, you want to strive each day to hit your protein target you know spread it out across the day um, and that that's your that's your number one goal 
And then as your, your level of, you know, again, the volume and the intensity and the level of restriction or recovery demands, as we look at those factors, you know, then we can um, kind of provide a little bit of, of suggestion that, that timing in some scenarios might create, you know, a, a, a little bit better of an opportunity for recovery and adaptations and things along those lines. But And it's probably for not the healthy population. It's probably more leveraged towards those with anabolic resistance, meaning there is a decrease in protein efficiency. For example, as a geriatrician and, you know, right down the street from you at WashU, post-training, it lowers their threshold need for protein. Having them do resistance exercise, and there's a, a great paper in the Journal of Endocrinology, I'll, I'll link it here, that post-exercise, they actually get a more robust response from the muscle with a lower protein intake, which of course, for an aging individual, a more mature individual, uh, sometimes overall calorie intake is is much lower than we'd like it to be. There, so there may be some benefit. And also, um, you know, there was an interesting paper from, I think it's Nick Bird, and he wrote a paper on the anabolic resistance that obesity may also create anabolic resistance in skeletal muscle. And that may be another group where perhaps the training, exercise training and protein timing may be of some benefit. A hundred percent. And I think that that's an area, um, you know, that the scientific literature you know, certainly has some catching up to do. Because I think, you know, overwhelmingly the, um, the, 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 the literature that, that has been examined has been, you know, kind of zeroed in a little bit more I on agree. You know, active agree. individuals, competitive athletes and the potential role. And, that, and that's largely probably been driven by, uh, you know, sports nutrition industry. But I think, but you bring up such a great point in the sense that, I mean, one, absolutely. You know, I mean, um, you know, aging individuals, you know, low fitness individuals, I mean, the health of their skeletal tissue is nowhere near where it needs to be and where it could be. And, um, and you're exactly right in the sense that you start doing some really nice efficacious doses of resistance training, that muscle becomes unbelievably sensitized to glucose and amino acids and all of these, all of these types of nutrients. And it's just one of the, just the many wonderful things that we see from exercise, particularly resistance exercise and, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's impact on skeletal muscle. Yeah. And you create flux and flux of the nutrients, which ultimately is very important for muscular health. I know that we're short on time today, but don't worry, everybody. We'll bring Dr. Chad back. Uh, we'll do it in person. And the concept of protein obviously is not going anywhere. And within the last 10 years, listen, I have been doing this for 20 years. And 20 years ago, nobody was talking about plant protein. There really wasn't this huge dichotomy. It seems to have been in the last handful of years, there is absolutely been an explosion and, and interest into how we can incorporate plant proteins. In, and I suppose the question is, what impact does that have? Do you want to kick it off or you want me to talk about, pro <laughs> you know? No, I, you know, you're, you're, you're exactly right. Because I remember, you know, going through undergraduate and kind of first 
you know, kind of experimenting with different proteins and looking at different dietary supplements. And, and I mean, there was just, there was just, there's nothing being discussed about, about various sources of plants. Um, you know, prior to, I think 2004, um, Maybe that's not right, but there. I mean, but basically, you know, nearly all of the original literature, what was done with soy, um, and you know, and there's, you know, but I, I think in general, you know, with how the different metrics that are out there to assess quality, you know, there's. And you're talking about metrics. You're talking about PDCAS, uh, which is and, and DIAS. Yep. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Protein utilization ratios. And yeah, so there's, you know, and I think for the listener that may not be familiar with that, there are just some different rating scales that scientists have developed that allow uh, researchers and clinicians and various people to, to compare different sources of protein in kind of a head to head fashion uh, to, you know, highlight which sources might be considered to, you know, be um, a higher quality or lower quality. And I, when we do that, the um, uh, the animal proteins tend really tend to, to fare really pretty well, uh, so that I think kind of led the way in terms of well which sources should we should we consume, and then I think that you know then we also started getting this proliferation of, of literature right from Bob Wolf's group and you know the the you know, yeah he's in Little Rock now and you know they have absolutely transformed what we know about. Um, you know, uh, protein exercise and, you know, amino acids. And they, they really kind of made it clear that, you know, the, um, um, the, the concentration of amino, of essential amino acids in the blood is a, is a primary driver, is a primary signal to the skeletal tissue on, you know, kind of promote, you know, um, uh, increases in muscle protein synthesis, you know, um, a greater improvements overall in you know, muscle protein turnover. So when you take that, so now we've said, okay, well, essential amino acids are key, all right? R quick definition, I mean, you know, essential amino acids are those that are, we've got to get them from the diet. Our body can't make them. It's essential that we get them in our diet. Um, in in uh, you know, animal sources of protein are, are, are have the highest amounts of those amino acids. So you start, if you just listen to the last, minute, you know, like you can quickly see, right, the logic as to why animal proteins have, have really become the most popular. So, so now you enter in, you know, if, you know, plant proteins were just, they were never really explored, uh, I think, because the consumer was just wanting whey protein, one, you know, which is a milk protein, you know, and they were just wanting different animal sources. Um, and then I think, you know, again, there was a there was a few studies done in soy. Nothing that really ever piqued anybody's interest, because uh, there was just as many studies that showed that there wasn't any difference, you know, as that there was. And then I think um, Jordan Joy published a paper where they compared uh, a rice protein isolate to a whey protein, and they dosed it really pretty high at 40 gram, 48 grams uh, over eight weeks. And they showed that, you know, similar changes in strength and, and, uh, body composition, you know, were observed. And that was really, I remember reading that paper for the first time and just thinking this is something's wrong. Something's off here. Like this just can't be like, everybody knows that whey protein is the best. And, um, and then a few years passed and there was another paper that popped up with some pea protein and it kind of showed, you know, kind of some similar things. Um, you know, my research group, we, we had an opportunity to, to do a follow-up study to that rice versus whey study, 
uh, and, and we actually devote we dosed it um, you know 24 grams across eight weeks you know one group uh, consumed a rice protein another group consumed a whey protein uh, resistance trained males they trained four days per week we measured strength of body composition and again we showed that both groups got and were they untrained or, or trained individuals they were they were they were modestly trained they were certainly not you know the uh, the most you know highly resistance trained athletes that you would find but then but they certainly were not sedentary they certainly were not and they were what was their age they were younger yeah I, the, the the limitations on I, I mean I think I don't know what our average age was off the top of my head, but I know we, we kind of delimited it to you know, like eight, probably like 18 to 40 years of age or like 18 to 50 years of age. Uh, so we definitely stayed away from, you know, kind of a older, you know, elder, elderly type of a population. But, uh, but basically, you know, we, we can, we found that, you know, the, the adaptations were, you know, were similar between the two groups. So that was the second study done with rice. Um, you know, there's been, there's, and there's just been a number of studies done by different research groups that have used, you know, the um, um, uh, stable isotope model to assess muscle protein synthesis rates, which is just kind of a, it's a pretty invasive technique to, to, to measure, you know, how much muscle protein is being built. And, um, and they've, and again, they, they've, I think the, the working dialogue would now suggest that, you know, Irrespective of the source of protein, if you're if you're able to deliver enough essentials, um, that you're that you're going to be able to achieve some pretty positive changes in muscle protein synthesis rate. So that's a good thing. You know, again, you 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 mentioned this earlier. You know, kind of the the comment from you know, like liberating. You know, like I mean that that has the potential to be to be liberating for some people that that really want to try to limit their animal protein intake or increase their plant protein intake, whether, you know, kind of for, you know, I mean, a number of different reasons, you know, but, but I think, uh, so that's really kind of, you know, where we're at, I, where I think a, a large bit of people would, would certainly acknowledge that if, yes, if people are able to get enough protein and able to get enough essential amino acids within each protein dose consistently across the day, that plant proteins can probably support, um, positive exercise training adaptations more so than what we ever really thought. And I think at this point we can all agree on that. Um, what's interesting is that yes, when you account for the, cause it's really the amino acids, we're not eating for protein. We're really eating for those 20 amino acids, nine of which are, are essential. Of those nine, we really need the branch chains, especially leucine. And when you increase the leucine threshold enough, you will be able to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. If an individual is younger, they can have a lower dose, hence, which is probably why you saw the same impact in a 24 gram dose of rice protein, where, as you would as a whey protein, were their amino acid profiles the same? No, they weren't. I mean, you know, I mean, whey protein certainly has uh, more of the essentials and more, um, you know, more leucine, more total amino acids, but. But what we did on that, but we, we, we had a really good idea what the amino acid composition was going to be in that rice protein. So that, that 24 gram dose we felt, you know, was, was going to be just like enough to meet grams of kind of the, perhaps. The, the, like the minimum yep. theoretical thresholds. Yeah. 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 I think, that I think that's sense. literally like right about what was being delivered. Um, so I, yeah. So I think, so that, that part of it, 
um, you know, just kind of works into, you know, kind of the overall dialogue. So when, you know, the, you know, the review paper that we wrote that you mentioned, and that, that was really just kind of, you know, the overall summary of, of where things were, you know, within the literature. There's certainly absolutely more work that needs to be done, you know, because I think that, um, you know, as we start to, to spin that, the, you know, one key thing with animals versus plants is, you know, you have to recognize, right, that, that plant proteins have, um, you know, a, a, like a, much, um, a lower rates of digestibility. They also have more kind of carbohydrates bound to them that, that kind of compromises the body's ability to get amino acids into the blood. And it, as, you, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, that's the golden ticket is getting amino acid levels up. Which is why the, the dias score for the uh, rice protein, all the isolates are higher. But then the next concern, I think, where the literature is going to go, and you and I were talking about this offline, is that when you are now isolating things that are not found in nature, um, two things happen. One, you diminish the food matrix. Whey protein is a food, a food source that we find. It has immunoglobulins. Rice pea blends, while there's definitely positive ways in which one can use it. I mean, it's amazing that now we have another food source. We are talking about a highly processed food and also we're eliminating the food matrix. The other things that come alongside of whole foods, and I am not, I, I, so there's the amino acid amount and then there are other things above and beyond amino acid amounts that I'm not sure we totally have a, a grasp on. What are your thoughts on that? And we we, there, we don't we don't. There's I, I mean I think the whole notion of the food you know like a protein matrix or a food matrix. I mean I think of you know uh, Dan Moore at you know University of Toronto who's one of you know one of one of um, uh, Stu Phillips's students and you know like he he's done a really nice job of really you know kind of focusing in on that and I I, I that that will absolutely be a key area of research because I think we're going to start to see that. The um, I think the, the 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 matrix side of things is really where we're gonna, uh, I, you know, start to identify the you know protein protein food sources roles in terms of supporting health, um, you know, just other kind of health related outcomes. I um, and I you know I certainly might be wrong about that, but that's that's just kind of what my what what, what my what my gut's telling me. I I would agree with you. I, I think you're absolutely right. And again, we'll end this here because I know you have to run to your next meeting. And in essence, it's not about being divided, right? It's not about animal versus plant. It's about what do we need to do to have a healthy planet? And really to have a healthy planet, we have to have these transparent conversations. Um, and I think that they're incredibly valuable. And in terms of evolving science, it is very important. So Dr. Chad, my friend, thank you so much for being on. I know that you're not super so you're not super active on Instagram, but you are active on Twitter. I will link your Twitter. I will also link your lab's webpage with your numerous publications. Is there anything else that you would like to share? Not really, except that just thank you. You know, I mean, like I said, it, it's it, it's always. It's I mean, always we need fun. at least another hour. An hour and fifteen minutes passes. We, we didn't even get to talk about caffeine, which I wanted to talk about. Yeah, this didn't we didn't get to talk about to... bicarb. We didn't get to talk about we, we, creatine. We, yeah. 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 We scratched the surface on plant proteins. I mean, 
Um, but but thank you. You know, it, it, it's always it's always great to see you. It's always fun to talk with you. Um, I certainly look forward to 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 being on again. And um, certainly, if anybody has any questions or anything else, yeah, just go ahead and kind of put all my information out there, and I'll I'll answer them as I as I get to them. I will, and you are very generous with your time. Thank you so much, and I will see you in November. Look forward to it. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.